what a great reminder of whose hands our lives are in. We are in the hands of a good, good father who's watching over us. He, he does not sleep and he does not slumber. And that's why it's so critical that even though we can't be together, that we still set aside time each week to remind each other through song and through prayer and now through God's word about these great truths about our God. So as we go to our time to look into God's word this morning, let's pray and ask God that he would open our ears so that we will hear what he has to say to us today and that he'll penetrate our hearts and give us the courage, the power of his Holy Spirit to put into practice what we hear this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have had together this morning to remind each other through song, through prayer, and now, Lord, through your word, that you are a good, good father and that you love us and that we are in your hands. And so, God, I pray that now as you open your word, Father, that you would open our ears to hear what you want to teach us this morning. And I pray, God, that you will give us the courage to apply these truths to our lives so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we would do it all to your glory. And we pray this in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this week there was a news headline that I saw that caught my attention. And this is what it said. It said, Texas Roadhouse CEO is giving up his salary and his bonus to pay his frontline workers during COVID-19. Wow. That caught my attention. I was intrigued. So I went on to read the article. And in it, a spokesman for the company said that absolutely, Wayne Kent Taylor is redirecting his base salary plus his bonus that he would have received from March 8th right through to January 7th, 2021 to the pockets of his frontline workers to help them through this pandemic. The spokesman went on to say, and I quote, Kent Taylor has always said that Texas Roadhouse is a people company that just happens to serve great stakes. His donation of his salary and bonus to help employees is the embodiment of that saying. And then the spokesperson said this quote at the end of her report, and it really caught my attention. We are blessed to have his leadership. The total compensation package that this CEO is giving up for his frontline workers is worth $1.3 million. It was so refreshing to read about a great story in the midst of so much bad news. And it got me thinking, wouldn't it be encouraging in our circle of influence within the family of God, but also with those that we are in relationship with in our community, if they could say of us, we are blessed by their leadership. We are blessed to know those people from Calvary Baptist Church. We are blessed to be influenced by them. And our family definitely benefits from our connection with them. Wouldn't that be so encouraging? Well, this morning we are going to spend some time in Mark chapter 10 where we will find some principles that I believe if we apply to our lives will help to ensure that we remain effective in our witness, both in the midst of stressful times, but even so beyond. We will see there Jesus lay out for his disciples a model, a spiritual business plan of sorts on how to become great. I'm sure many of you have heard people saying over these days, I can't wait till things return to normal. I know that I've even thought that, and I've found myself saying that many times to my wife and to my kids. 
But recently, I have also noticed a new longing growing in me for us as believers, as Christ's ambassadors. And it is this. I don't want us to simply long to return to how things were, personally or corporately as his church. But by God's grace, what I am longing for through the power of the Holy Spirit is for us to even be better than we were before at loving the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and loving our neighbors as ourselves. As followers of Christ, let's not settle for longing to return to what was the norm. No, let's pray. Let's anticipate a new and even better norm. Amen? Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We will start at verse 32, and we will read through verse 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they said. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless his word. From this passage, I want to highlight three principles to becoming great kingdom citizens that were taught and modeled by Jesus Christ, our CEO, our chief eternal officer. And the first principle to becoming great kingdom citizens he taught and he modeled is we are to trust wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty. Now I know that most, if not all of us, would have no hesitation to answer yes if we were asked the question, do you trust in God's sovereignty? We would all agree with the description of God found in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, where it is written, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. 
And we would also agree with the Apostle Paul that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know these truths intellectually, but in Jesus' model of becoming a great kingdom citizen, trusting wholeheartedly in what we believe has to be reflected in our attitudes and in our actions. It has to move from our head to compel our hearts, which will motivate our hands into action. You see, as disciples, brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber meets the road in stressful times. Do our attitudes and our actions reflect what we believe to be true about God? Do they show that we wholeheartedly trust in his sovereignty? And an indicator that they do is other people will notice. Look back at verse 32. It says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. What a beautiful picture of our Savior, our captain, our CEO. He is always going before us. He was leading the way. And note, the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Two separate groups of people noticed something different about Jesus that day while he was making his way up to Jerusalem. First, the 12 disciples, it says, were astonished. And most agree it was because of how focused and committed Jesus seemed to be that day to lead them to Jerusalem. In Luke's account, he writes, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. His face was set towards Jerusalem. One of my favorite events to watch at the Summer Olympic Games is the 100-meter sprint. And when they line up at the start line, you see their faces, you see their eyes, and they are zeroed down their lane looking at the finish line. Then they have to get into their blocks and their heads go down. You don't see their eyes again until the gun fires and the race starts. And as soon as that race starts, as their heads come up, their eyes are focused on the end line. This is what it was like for Jesus that day. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. His face was facing towards Jerusalem. And the disciples noticed it, and they were astonished. While others who followed, the Bible says, were afraid. You see, even other pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover sensed something was in the air. Something significant seemed to be brewing but they did not understand what it was. They couldn't put their finger on it. You see, what the disciples and others who followed noticed about Jesus that day, but did not fully comprehend, was Jesus modeling for them wholehearted trust in God the Father's sovereignty. Jesus knew that his procession up to Jerusalem that day was all part of God's plan for his life unfolding. He knew that. And he trusted his father's will. And to help his disciples make sense of what they were noticing and what the others were afraid of, that made the disciples astonished, the Bible says he took them aside and he explained to them for the third and final time what was going to happen to him. Look with me back at verse 33. The scripture says, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said to them, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, 
and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus gave them the most detailed prediction of what he had already told them twice before in chapter 8, verse 31, and in chapter 9, verse 31. And even though he knew full well the very difficult road ahead of him, which would ultimately lead to his death, Jesus modeled this first principle of trusting wholeheartedly in God, his Father's sovereignty. Evidence through his obedience to the Father in his actions, which in turn caused other people to notice, which in turn gave him the opportunity to share what was going on. In Hebrews chapter 11, a familiar passage of Scripture, you can read it for yourself. There's a record of others who displayed this type of wholehearted trust in God's sovereignty. There you will find people that you are familiar with like Noah and Abraham, Joseph, Moses' parents who knew there was something special about their son and recognizing that they hid him for three months after his birth going against the king's edict. You think of David and Goliath. And when I mention to you people who demonstrate wholehearted trust in God's sovereignty, I'm sure there's many faces and many people and many names besides those mentioned in the Bible. Some of them might even be from within our, fa our church family that you go, yes, those people lived in such a way that it revealed they trusted in God's sovereignty wholehearted. We saw it in their attitudes. We saw it in their actions. For me personally, I think of my parents who left their family and left their home and left the country that they knew to go to Africa and to serve the Lord for over 25 years as missionaries. And as a child, I got to observe and watch them trust wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty, even in many situations that were stressful and we weren't sure how it was going to turn out. I think of Bay Forrest, who many of us know, he's been here a couple of times to speak, who God blessed with, the, with being six foot ten and with great skills to play basketball. And after winning a national championship in college, was going to be drafted by the Seattle Supersonics in the first round. And God said to him, I want you to give up going to play professional basketball. Something he's worked on his whole life to get to. I want you to give that up. I want you to go and spend a year and play with an amateur basketball team called Athletes in Action. And Bay trusted God's sovereignty with all his heart. And he made that decision. And he was ridiculed for it. The media made fun of him. And even after God gave him the opportunity to be in the NBA, when he'd go back to Seattle, the fans would still ridicule him for trusting wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that people within the family of God and those outside the family of God, see through our attitudes and through our actions that we trust God and we trust his sovereignty. Not only in the stressful time we currently find ourselves in, but also when by God's timing we come out of this. Let's make sure that we reflect through our attitudes and our actions that we trust wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty. He is a good, good father. Because if they do, others will notice and it will open up opportunities for great gospel conversations. Which, by the way, I have been so encouraged to receive emails from you. Many of you, this has already begun. Your neighbors are asking you questions. Old classmates from universities are asking you questions. Someone in my DC group told me today, someone he hasn't spoken to for over 30 years who's living in Alberta. They reconnected. People want to know what is going on. 
Just like the disciples and those who followed Jesus that day. They were astonished. They were afraid. And it gave Jesus the opportunity to share with them what was going on. So during this season, let's ask the Holy Spirit to do a spiritual audit of our lives and reveal to us if there is a gap between what we know and believe and what our actions and our attitudes reflect. And if there is, let's ask him to narrow that gap. Because the first principle to becoming great kingdom citizens is we must trust wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty. The second principle from our CEO to becoming great kingdom citizens is daily deny yourself. As we read the passage, didn't you find the response of James and John so ironic? Especially in light of what Jesus had just told them. Now, let's not forget it is much easier for us to understand what was going on, being on this side of the cross. But still, no sooner had Jesus, the one whom they loved and had given everything up to follow, finishes sharing the most detailed prediction of the suffering he is about to endure... And we see James and John come to him and make the most self-centered request in verse 35. They say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. Their attitude and their actions could not have been more opposite to those Jesus had just displayed for them in his conversation with them. You see, clearly the disciples did not grasp what Jesus was modeling for them or what he had taught them not that long ago in Capernaum regarding humility. Go back to chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 33. The scriptures say they came to Capernaum, referring to Jesus and the disciples. When he was in the house, he asked them a question, which was a very uncomfortable question. What were you arguing about on the road? And verse 34 says, but they kept quiet. You could hear crickets in the room. They kept quiet because on the road they were arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. To be the servant of all requires denying yourself. So in spite of his explicit teaching with them on humility and the example that he was setting for them, they were not able to get past themselves. They were not able to get past their own agenda. As one author correctly said, it seemed the nearer Jesus came to his ordeal, the disciples did not draw nearer to understanding. You see, the truth is, brothers and sisters, if we are honest, there's a lot more of James and John in all of us than we would want to admit. We can see our own selfishness in them. All of us at times, probably more than we want to admit, struggle with the natural tendency to look out for number one. And if we don't keep this in check, we will find ourselves caught in one of our enemy's greatest schemes which is to get us focusing on taking care of ourselves and our own needs rather than trusting wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty. And we begin to manipulate situations in an effort to make sure things happen the way we want. And sadly, too often, with little consideration for those around us. 
And James gives a stern warning about operating with such selfish ambition, with this kind of wisdom. Listen to what he says in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Listen closely. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And James and John come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. But did you notice Jesus' response to James and John's self-centered request? Or probably more accurately put, their demand? He didn't rebuke them or say, excuse me, just who do you guys think you are? No, he responds to their ill-timed, selfish request with grace. Yes, with grace. Asking them in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? To which they replied with full gusto, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You see, James and John, along with the other disciples, still thought that what was about to happen was that the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God was going to appear. And they foresee themselves as part of the elite leadership team who will rule over others alongside Jesus in an earthly empire. In their minds, they were hoping to replace the self-serving oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving power structure. This is why James and John made the request. This is why they were busy jostling for positions of prominence. And James and John's perhaps hoping to capitalize on their family ties with Jesus, get out in front of the other guys to ask Jesus to be considered for places of highest prominence and honor beside the throne. Jesus, let one of us sit on the right and one of us sit on the left. And Jesus, recognizing they did not fully comprehend what was about to happen, answers them with a statement and a question. He says to them in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. And secondly, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? In other words, what I just shared with you is going to happen to me. Can you endure such suffering, such hardships, such trials, even to the point of death? And as one author correctly said, using the cup and baptism as metaphors, Jesus was highlighting for them he was not going to just be sprinkled with a bit of suffering no, he was going to be submerged in it. And here Jesus is graciously trying to help his disciples understand that greatness in the kingdom of God, which is what they were pursuing, does not come through selfish ambition. It does not come through rank. It does not come through position. It comes through humility. It comes through suffering. And it comes through self-sacrifice. For them to sit with him in glory would require them to suffer just as he was about to. So James and John, are you sure? Are you sure 
you can endure this kind of sacrifice. To which they answered with such self-confidence in verse 39, we can. And then in their conversation, Jesus predicts for them, as he had about himself, that they indeed will suffer as he will. But he is quick to remind them, just in case there was still some thought in their minds that their willingness to suffer the way he would, would guarantee them their request would be answered. And so he says to them in verse 40, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, only God the Father's sovereign will determines that. See, brothers and sisters, ever since the first disciples, the temptation amongst followers of Christ to jostle for prominence in order to be noticed, causing jealousy amongst other believers, has been an ongoing problem that we have to be aware of and that we have to fight against. Verse 41 reveals that James and John, they were not the only ones who struggled with this. Look what the Bible says. When the other ten heard about this, about James and John's request, they became indignant with James and John. And let's not be fooled by their reaction. This was not righteous indignation. No, the other ten had been guilty in the past of such self-serving conduct and would also be so in the future. They were simply bent out of shape by James and John for beating them to the punch and resented the fact that they may now have an edge over them for the positions of prominence they all wanted. You see, self-centeredness is the biggest obstacle to becoming great in Jesus' kingdom. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, that whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever even wants to be part of my kingdom, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the required mindset of anyone who wants to be great Jesus' way. This is what Jesus modeled, and this is what he called his disciples to follow. And Paul encourages us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, that we are to have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He denied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. James and John may not have fully understood what they were asking Jesus for that day. And they did not get the answer they were hoping for. But history records that they did eventually learn the lesson Jesus was trying to teach them. That to be great kingdom citizens requires us to daily deny ourselves. And in Acts chapter 12 verse 2 it is recorded that James was beheaded. And in Revelations chapter 1 verse 9 we read that John was tortured and exiled to Patmos both for the sake of Christ. Brothers and sisters we will not be effective witnesses of his kingdom if we are not willing to embrace and apply this principle of daily denying ourselves. As one author wrote, self-seeking ambition has no place in the church founded on the ultimate self-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If we want to be better than we were before, then we need to make sure that our attitudes and our actions reflect that we trust wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty. 
And we better be willing to daily deny ourselves. And thirdly, the third principle to becoming great kingdom citizens is we must willingly serve others. You see, after addressing James and John's request and noticing the other disciples' reaction, Jesus realized his guys still had a lot to learn on this whole area of humility. So he calls them together and he fleshes out this third principle for them by making a comparison between self-centered leadership and servant leadership. He calls their attention first to an example of self-centered leadership, which they were all too familiar with. In verse 42, he says, Jesus called them together and said, You know, you have seen firsthand that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Here he's making reference to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders who he had already mentioned in verse 32 and 34. He says they use their authority and they lord it over them. And then he says their high officials lord it over them, their authority over them. In reference to the Roman authority, pagan leadership, they exercise authority over the religious uh, leaders and it's all about power. It's all about position. The disciples had witnessed both the pagan leaders and the religious leaders use their positions to prop themselves up at the expense of others. And rather than use their authority responsibly to protect and benefit those under their care, Jesus says they lord it over them. Carrying out their authority in a domineering, unjust, oppressive way. And after hearing and seeing some of his closest companions, his disciples on the road that day, display attitudes and ambitions similar to those ruling over the Jewish people, Jesus exhorts them in verse 33, verse 43, sorry, this cannot be so with you. This type of leadership, not so with you. Leading in such a self-centered fashion as these leaders do is not how you become great in God's kingdom. Instead, he says in verse 43 and verse 44, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That requires us to deny ourselves. Here, Jesus is giving them the secret to becoming great in his kingdom, and his model is completely contrary to the self-centered model of the rulers he had just referred them to. Unlike their model of becoming great, greatness in Jesus' kingdom is not defined by power or position. Rather, it is defined by serving and caring for others to the point of being a slave to those served. You see, Jesus' life and teaching turns the disciples' worldly understanding of greatness and great works completely upside down. And he highlights for them that self-giving service is the only greatness recognized by God. And only those who give of themselves for others will be the big winners with God. For even, for even guys, the Son of Man, as he starts verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' mission statement here provided his disciples with the ultimate example of what servant leadership looks like. 
You see, he had previously told them the he had previously told them that he will die. But this is the only passage in Mark where he tells them why he must die, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, being God incarnate, the one with real authority, came to serve to the point of being willing to lay down his life for the sake of many, people just like you and I. And through his personal sacrifice, he paid the debt that we could never have paid for our sin so that we could be free from slavery to sin and being rescued from ever having to face the wrath of God. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to willingly serve others. In an article called True Leadership is Sacrifice, Not Privilege, David Mathis makes this statement. Christian leadership in the home, the church, and elsewhere is not for those clawing for honor and recognition, but for those most ready to fall to their knees and be inconvenienced by the needs of others. Jesus is the ultimate example of willingly serving others. If we look back to what Mr. Taylor is doing for his frontline workers at Texas Roadhouse, his extreme generosity and his willingness to serve others should be commended. However, and please don't misunderstand me when I say this, but the, rea the reality is that his gift will only cover his workers' financial debt for a year. But brothers and sisters, the price Jesus willingly paid through the sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf will take care of our sin debt we owe God, not just for one year, but for all eternity. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And I think you would agree and would say with me, truly, we are blessed by his leadership. We are blessed to know him. We are blessed to be influenced by him. And we have benefited greatly through our connection with him by grace through faith. You see, Jesus' model of becoming great kingdom citizen sets the gold standard of servant leadership. Every effective organization and movement starts at the top with leaders who are willing to put into practice the principles that they want other people to follow. And Jesus is the one who established this model. Jesus trusted wholeheartedly in God the Father's sovereignty. He denied himself and he willingly served others. And now he invites us to follow him in becoming great kingdom citizens by applying these principles that he taught and that he modeled. And by God's grace, may this be our new norm for today and moving forward, that we would be a church that would be willing to trust him wholeheartedly, trust wholeheartedly in God's sovereignty, that we would be a church that is willing to daily deny ourselves and willingly serve others. And if we do that now in stressful times and beyond, people will notice and it will open up incredible opportunities for us to share with them the good news of what is going on. These are the principles that our CEO has taught and modeled for us 
And now by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, let us go now and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to spend time in your word today. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, not only for what he taught, but thank you, Lord, for what he modeled. And God, I thank you that he taught us through this passage of Scripture how to become great kingdom citizens. And so, Father, I pray that we will take these three principles from God's Word, modeled through the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would apply them. And I pray, God, that everything we do will bring glory to you. And when people ask us, For the answer to the hope that we have, I pray, God, that we will be ready and we will respond with gentleness and with respect. Thank you so much for your word this morning. I pray that it will encourage us, strengthen us. I pray that it will give us focus as we move forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.